Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the Paleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Hi, listeners. Hi, Sarah. It's been an interesting week, has it not? Um, It has for both of us, hasn't it? It, um... It has been quite timely that we've both had a similar situation happen this week. Situer, um, Apparently, I can't talk anymore. We've had <laughs> similar situations of of uh, terribleness, kind of different, but yes. So, for you listeners that might not know. Um, and by now when this airs, it'll have been over two weeks for me. But, um, last week I had an anaphylactic reaction to gluten. Um, and Sarah can get into what happened to her this week, but this has never happened to me before, but we have talked many times about how this is something that happened to my mom. Um, and it happened, it started happening to her later years. And I had just hoped that with being gluten-free for the last, you know, eight years almost at this point, um, that I would not develop the same, I'm going to call it allergy, but we'll discuss that in a minute. Um, the same allergy as her, um, but uh, evidently it did. And so I completely brought this on myself. I ate something without reading the full ingredient list, making an assumption uh, based on the title of a food on what was in it. And um, I felt like quite a dork going into the allergens office and them saying, well, if you know you're celiac, why did you eat this thing that had gluten in it? And I was like, well, you know, after podcasting for five years and writing three cookbooks and running a blog, (laughs) I just, you know, don't learn. (laughs) (laughs) Felt like a winner there. Let me tell Uh. you. Well, um, my experience again was was different. Um, I uh, know that I have a severe sulfa drug allergy, um, but I exposed myself to a medication without realizing that it contained sulfa, and had uh, such a severe reaction. Uh, I was nearly hospitalized, and um, I'm still recovering from it uh, over a week later. And, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm on the, the, like, okay, I will get better. (laughs) Like it's finally getting better. But I mean, really for the first five days, it was worse and worse every single day. Um, and it was, it was, that was a scary one that, that, um, is one of the biggest health crises that I have experienced. And, um, you know, and I, I had to go full, 
right, with those types of reactions. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about this, I'm sure, during the show, but full steroids and everything to, to calm down my immune system. And so now I've got to do all of the recovering from uh, I'm still on my taper of, of steroids as we record this, and then I'll have to do the recovering from steroids protocol. And uh, it's just going to be a, a – and it was, a, you know, I think sort of similar to you of like, huh, if I had taken a little bit more time in making that decision, I may have made a, a better one and, um, you know, not lost the CrossFit Open, which is one of the things that this will reaction will have cost me. Um uh, I wasn't able to do the first workout and I probably won't be able to work out yet by the time the second workout <laughs> is done. Um, and then I'll probably be gradually getting back into working out for the next couple of weeks. So that's pretty much the whole open right there. Um, so it's, it's frustrating, but I think, you know, every time we have stories like this to share with our listeners, I, the reason why we do share them is because um, life is, isn't always a straight line. And these are both situations that, you know, were, were certainly avoidable. Um, but, you know, I think we, we both had errors in judgment and it both landed us in some, some, some pretty uh, not fun times. And, um, when other people go through those experiences, you know, I want them to know that they're not the only ones, that it, it happens to all of us. And sometimes, you know, for me, like I end up in the, you know, I've got very limited choices in terms of how I'm going to get better. Because once my immune system is overreacted to this level, I mean, there's steroids are the option. There's There's not another way around this. There's not a, I'm going to, you know, take some dead sea salt baths and some essential oils like that. That's just, there's not another, another way around this. doesn't matter that I'm following the autoimmune protocol. This is such a sphere reaction. I need medical intervention. And so I, I always want to, as we share these stories, take it as an opportunity to share with people that, you know, this is, this is a common experience. This is part of what life with autoimmune disease and life with food sensitivities and life with chronic illness is. And, um, you know, sometimes we feel a little bit like we're just rolling with the punches. But, you know, the important thing is to always come back to our, you know, toolbox of amazing things, the things we talk about on this podcast all the time, like nutrient density, like sleep and stress management and activity and an anti-inflammatory diet and and look at that toolbox as the way to recover from these types of things as quickly as possible and hopefully avoid them as often as, you know, as often as we can, they're not completely unavoidable, but hopefully we can reduce the number of times we have to go through experiences like this. So, um, first, I, I a hundred percent agree that the intention for me with this, um, is to educate people, first of all, that there is such a thing as <laughs> access to gluten or severe mm -hmm. reaction to, you know, the group of drugs that you had. I think that a lot of people think or have misconception about um, allergies, intolerances, and sensitivities. And getting information and education out is super helpful, both so that you can 
be more educated to help others, but also to protect yourself, right? And secondly, um, no matter what you do and how much, how hard you paleo is the phrase that we've used before, Mm -hmm. um, or the extent to which you, you know, are super careful about AIP, um, I can name a number of times where I was accidentally exposed to anything from a trace amount to, you know, taking a couple bites and then realizing that something wasn't what it was supposed to be. And um, I can say that after many years, um, the types of reaction that my body had from a minor amount of exposure to something is entirely different than it was years ago. And I personally attribute that to improved gut health. Like Mm -hmm. I no longer have a violent reaction intestinally to gluten. And in fact, I had zero <laughs> digestive <laughs> reaction to gluten, which I think is is interesting because a lot of people think, oh, if I don't have digestive upset when I eat something, then I don't have a problem with it. But mm. there are entirely different sets of symptoms from migraines to allergies to, for me in particular, I get mood swings, um, I get brain fog, and um, I get inflammation, I get you know, swelling in my limbs, I get um, acne, I get all kinds of incredible joint pain from inflammation. And um, someone might not, if I told a doctor those symptoms, nine out of 10 doctors is not going to say, well, what are you eating? And let's (laughs) look at food elimination. But all of those symptoms go away when I'm not exposed to the foods that are problematic for me. So I think it's, it's, an interesting perspective for me that um, sometimes, you know, you guess that you got exposed to gluten. You, I mean, you and I have talked about this before, right? Mm-hmm. When you, you go into a restaurant and you walk out and you don't feel your best and you're like, oh, I think something I ate, but you're kind of guessing, right? You're like, yeah. um, you know, could it have something touched a wrong surface? Did something, you know, somebody put something in my food? I don't know. What did they put? Corn, gluten, gr- you know what I mean? Like to me, right. I have no idea. Um but in this particular case, after I consumed something and had an um, anaphylactic reaction to it, and I was coughing and my throat was closing, and I knew exactly what was happening because you know it happened to my mom after the whole thing dissipated, I was able to think to myself, "Did I have gluten? Like, could I have had gluten?" And then I looked into the food that I ate by looking up the ingredients on the website and. <laughs> There it is, <laughs> plain and bold and easy to see on the website that there was um, not an insignificant amount of wheat flour in the food that <sighs> I consumed. And so it's like, oh, I 100% know that that is what I ate and that is the reaction that it caused. Mm-hmm. And would I have had an anaphylactic reaction, you know, years ago if I'd exposed myself? I have no idea because I've never had that quantity of gluten in almost eight years. So I don't know. And I do know that this progressed for my mom about the same age as me, right? So to me, I have no idea what caused it, what triggered it. Is it hereditary? Is it a true allergy even is something that I think is is worth discussing because there's yep. there was a little bit of drama there and I was bothering you um, while you were having your own <laughs> issues last week, um, trying to get to the bottom of some that stuff. Was a- 
fun text message exchange yeah, that one. Yeah, it was. Um, resulted in a phone call because it was so interesting. Yes. But, um, you know, to Cole me... will never be the same. Yes. <laughs> Cole, I'm in the room. Um, <laughs> I, um, I just think it's important for people to, you know, be aware and not kind of make assumptions or not, um, you know be confused about these differences because um, I, the short, the short of this is after going in to get allergy tested, I was told that I did not have an allergy to gluten. And as I was leaving the allergist's office was told by the receptionist who quickly glanced at my chart, Oh, you can have wheat now. (laughs) Skipping over the celiac part of the chart. Skipping over (laughs) the fact that, uh, I had just gone into anaphylaxis from that. Like, um, no, let's, I'm going to. Let's break that down. Let's yes. let's really break down the difference between a true allergy and a food intolerance and a food sensitivity, because those are three terms that actually have really specific meaning. And we tend to use them interchangeably. And I think it's really important to kind of just explain the difference between what those terms mean mechanistically, because one of the best things that we can do to be our own health advocates is really understand this biology, you know, as well as we can. Um, So one of the things that when we were talking, we were sort of talking about allergy testing um, you know, one of the things that we were differentiating with right away was the difference between an allergy and an intolerance. These are the two most similar in terms of uh, a food reaction um, because an allergy and an intolerance are both mediated by antibodies being produced against uh, an antigen in that food. So that means there's a small section of a protein in that food that an antibody that our body makes binds to and that triggers an immune reaction. What's different between an allergy and an intolerance is the type of antibody that's being produced. So there are sort of five classes of antibodies. Um, they're very helpfully given just letters to to differentiate them. Um, allergies are mediated by what are called IgE antibodies. And the other four types of antibodies are the ones that mediate intolerance. So if it's IgE, it mediates an allergy. And that's because IgE antibodies trigger the release of histamine from two different types of specialized cells. They're called mast cells and basophils. And they're, uh, some of them are in your blood. Some of them uh, live in your tissue throughout your entire body. And that histamine is responsible for the huge range of symptoms that we experience with an allergy. It's a very, very fast system. So it's a system that mobilizes very quickly. That's why you can go into anaphylaxis within minutes of consuming a food that you have a true allergy to. So it's typically a very, very fast reaction. And um, it typically has a very, very long memory. So one of the things that happens with all of these immune reactions is the body has ways of basically patrolling for these, you know, allergens, these substances that our our bodies recognize as being a problem. And, um, And the memory for creating IgE antibodies, that memory can be lifelong. It's it's incredibly long, whereas the memory for other antibody types is a little bit shorter. And that's one of the reasons why food intolerance tends to be a little bit more dynamic. But getting back to allergies, I really want to make sure that we sort of really 
explain allergies well, and then intolerance kind of slots in right after that. Um, the symptoms are all caused by this big release of histamine. And the symptoms are those symptoms that we typically associate with allergies. So if you think about seasonal allergies, you think about um, hives, uh, rashes, uh, swelling of, you know, typically it's like lips, nasal tissues, eyes, ears, tongue, throat, uh, the entire face sometimes, uh, flushing or burning sensation in the skin. So it's turning very, very red and feeling very hot. Um Things like sneezing, coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath, red itchy eyes, runny nose, uh, histamine uh, skyrockets heart rate. So you can just feel like your heart's pounding. And there can be GI symptoms that are mediated from the histamine release as well. So most typically abdominal pain, bloating, vomiting, and diarrhea. Um, they can be very, very dramatic. So like anaphylaxic reactions is this life-threatening, severe allergic reaction that is most um, sort of stereotypically characterized by hives, severe swelling, trouble breathing, and actually like going into shock. Um, but of course, histamine is still what's driving, you know, seasonal allergies where you have like a, a runny nose and you're, you're sneezing. So uh, that's still histamine. That's just histamine in a in a much lower quantity. Um, again, the reactions tend to be very, very quick after exposure to that allergen. So for example, you can think of like in the case of seasonal allergies where you're fine indoors and then you walk outside where the pollen is and you're like instantly your eyes are itchy and your nose is running and you're sneezing. And that's a fairly, it's a fairly fast transition from I was fine when I was inside where there was no pollen. And as soon as I went outside where the pollen was, you know, I felt miserable. Or um, you can think of it and like peanut allergies are typically anaphylaxis allergies. So peanut allergies, you know, are life-threatening anaphylaxis that happens sometimes just from um, uh, aromatic exposure to peanuts, right? So it's such a it's it's a system that can ramp up a response, uh, just exponentially. So it can take an incredibly tiny amount of the allergen to trigger this response. So in the case of peanut allergies, for some kids, it's literally walking into a room where there's a peanut and those couple of molecules that they're getting exposed to in the air is enough to trigger anaphylaxis. So it's a, it's a system that really can spiral out of control incredibly quickly. In terms of testing, um, one of the things that I had a, a, a really interesting time doing was looking up the accuracy of the standard testing methods. And that was something that arose out of our text message conversation, Stacey. Um, the, there's two main ways that allergies are diagnosed. Uh, one is a skin prick test. Um, and they can do this in two ways. They usually will do a grid either on your arms or your back. Um, they'll, they'll, you know, like write, like they'll create this grid and then they'll either put a little drop of um, a concentrated food antigen on your skin and little just scratch the skin underneath with a, a lancet or they'll actually um, inject a tiny, tiny amount just under the first couple layers of skin, like a little tiny bubble. Um, and then we usually do straight histamine as a positive control. And then they'll wait about 20 minutes and see if you develop a hive where that antigen was developed. And that's a technique that's been around for a long time. It's what allergists will typically use. There are some times where it's 
not appropriate, where it's not going to work. Like they won't use it if they think that you could go into anaphylaxis from the testing. Um, if you've been on any kind of medications for allergic reactions, it's not going to be very accurate. Um, there's certain health conditions in which they know affects accuracy. But the false negative rate is – it's interesting because it's, it's a hard thing to measure. What they measure when they're measuring the accuracy is they will literally say, well, like, we gave you this food and you for sure reacted in front of us. So we know it's this food. And yet when we did this test, we didn't see the same result. So um, – so the false negative rate is up to about 10%, which means that the test is next shows up that you're not allergic to something, even though you really are. And the false positive rate is between 50 and 70%. So that, it literally means that about half of the things that show up on this test saying you're allergic, they know you aren't really and there's a variety of things that can drive those false positive rates. Um, having an inflammatory condition like asthma or eczema can can drive it. Certain parasite infections can drive it. Uh, certain more serious conditions like Hodgkin's lymphoma can drive it. So there's a variety of things that drive that false positive rate up higher. Um, but really, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that accurate to have 10% of the time that it shows negative, you really are allergic and you know half of the time that it shows positive you really aren't um the other alternatives for the skin prick test are uh, blood tests these are either uh, a rast test um or uh, a cap rast or immunocap test um and basically they're they're measuring ige antibodies in the blood what's different between them is how they label those antibodies so a rast test radios it uh labels it with radioactive isotopes, whereas a cap test uses uh, fluorescence. It uses ELISA technology. Um, and what's cool about the blood test is they can do like 150 things or 200 you know, things at the same time, whereas with the skin prick test, um, it's usually much more focused. It might be 10 or 30. Um, so with the RAST test, they can, they can test a lot more food antigens at the same time. It's looking for the same. It's looking for IgE antibodies. So it's the same type of reaction. And it has a very similar false negative rate, maybe as high as 20%, but 10 to 20%. And a, maybe a slightly lower false positive rate, sort of 40 to 60%. Um, but overall, sort of similar in terms of accuracy. And these are, because of the, the limitations with this, most allergists will... Um, sort of back this up with an elimination and challenge diet, which means you cut out the suspected food for four to six weeks, and then you methodically try to, to eat it. You, you know, you follow it a, a reintroduction protocol, um, like the reintroduction protocols that are in my books or on my website and monitor yourself for a reaction. And when you're, when you're doing this specifically for allergies, the reintroduction protocol involves, um, incredibly small amounts over an hour and monitoring yourself for all of those allergy type symptoms. So at the end of the day, most allergists would say, you know, if, if we can isolate this food, um, you know, one of the things that makes allergy testing challenging is that the antigen, right, the thing that the antibody binds to, if you cook the food, 
that changes the antigen. So some people will be allergic to raw eggs, but not cooked eggs. That's a real thing. Um, if the antibody cross reacts, you might test positive to, you know, for example, 20% of people with an allergy to wheat will test positive for all other grains because of the similarity in the proteins. And it's, I think, a sort of debatable thing of, you know, an allergist would say it's not a true allergy to those other things. Um, if it's a cross reactivity, I think, um, if, if it's cross reactivity, it has the the possibility of, of still creating symptoms. So you would still want to avoid things that cross react, but an allergist wouldn't diagnose it as a corn allergy. They'd say it's a cross reactive wheat allergy, if that makes any sense. Does it make sense? None of it makes, I mean, it makes sense (laughs) to me. Yes. Um, I, I just don't agree with the science and as not that I don't agree with the science, I don't agree with the application of the science, which is incomplete. Let me be clear. Um, I think that, you know, for me, I had intentionally avoided going to this particular kind of testing because a, it adds no value. Like I'm already know I have an issue with gluten and I'm not going to eat it. And B, I know that, um, all the kinds of tests have the ability to give erroneous information. And so while elimination testing isn't perfect, it's worked for me to listen to my body and just make adjustments as I've needed rather than, you know, someone telling me on a piece piece of paper, like this is what, you know, you should or should not do. Um, And then they can also change. I think one of the things that's important is like, just because something does or doesn't show up today doesn't mean that it won't, your body won't develop an allergy or an intolerance later. Um, so I think what's maybe the the question that I asked you that's interesting is, well, if I don't show up positive for a gluten allergy test result, and, and we did a skin prick to be clear, um, then how could it be possible? And P.S. for interesting information's sake, neither does my mom. Um, how is it possible to have anaphylaxis? Because as I broke it down in my layman's terms, allergy is specific to histamine. I know that you use the, you know, the IgE reference and that kind of thing. Um, to me, you know, my question to you was, is it possible to have an inflammatory reaction, not based on histamine, to the food um, that would cause such uh, such a reaction from my body? Or is it more likely that I'm, my mom and I are, have something that, you know, nobody can quite pinpoint that is an allergy that just isn't showing up, like I'm part of the 10%, right? Yeah. Let's, um, so the answer to that question is a little bit complex. Um, if the symptoms of anaphylaxis are the symptoms of a severe histamine release, and there are a couple of conditions that can cause histamine release bypassing IgE antibodies, uh, that are autoimmune related. And, um, I, 
they typically don't have this type of intense trigger, however. So there are situations where your body can be releasing a lot of histamine. Um, usually you would have things like histamine intolerance. Like this would be like a longstanding medical condition in, rather than an immediate reaction. Um, with food intolerance, so I mentioned that there's these other four types of antibodies. Most food intolerance is driven by IgG antibodies, but they can also be driven by IgA, IgM, and um, at least hypothetically IgD antibodies. There's no testing for IgD antibodies yet. Um, and the symptoms tend to be more delayed. They can be within a couple of hours, um, but they tend to be more sort of the four-hour to four-day period of time because this tends to be a system that builds its response a little bit slower. Um, the symptoms are much more directly related to just immune activation. And there are symptoms that sort of overlap. So you can get sort of the itchy eyes or mouth, the sneezing, the coughing. You can get um, headaches. You can get dizziness and lightheadedness. You can get... Uh, sort of anxiety, um, you can get the runny nose, you can get aches, pains, um, joint aches, lots of skin changes fall under here. So rashes, acne, um, uh, any kind of dry, you know, dry spots uh, on the skin or little pink bumps. Um, you can get the full range of GI symptoms. So uh, and everything from abdominal pain, heartburn, nausea, constipation, diarrhea, uh, gas, bloating, just inefficient digestion. You can get uh, mood changes. You can have fatigue, changes of um, uh, redu redu reductions in energy. Um, you can have restlessness, uh, difficulty falling asleep. Um, you can have weird food cravings. So you can have like pica, for example, where you feel like you want to eat uh, dirt, <laughs> um, but you know, sugar cravings, caffeine cravings, um, any symptom of a chronic health condition worsening, right? Because it's it's from that sort of driving inflammation. All of those things can be symptoms of a food intolerance. It tends to be a slower burn, um, and it tends to be delayed compared to to IgE. So just you know, based on what I know about the reaction that you had. Um, I, you know, it sounds much more like a histamine mediated reaction in both the symptoms and the timing. What's interesting is that there is some research that indicates that if you have recently had an anaphylactic reaction, that you have a higher false negative rate, um, something that surprises me that an allergist would do a skin prick test so soon after you've reported having an anaphylactic style reaction to something and put stock in a negative reaction. Um, so there seems to be a sort of, uh, you know, after this, after your skin has produced a lot of, your body has produced a lot of histamine in this in this big reaction, it basically needs some time to make more histamine before it can react that big 
in a skin prick test. And it's one of the reasons why the blood testing is often done in conjunction with skin prick testing. So they can look at the levels of IgE antibodies as well. Um, another thing with all of this allergy testing and it applies to, because we'll talk about food intolerance testing as well, is you have to have been exposed to the allergen relatively recently to have a measurable amount of antibodies. So um, they, they know that if you haven't been exposed in like the last three to four weeks, that the false negative rate is much, much higher. So um, that's another another aspect of, of this testing that is that is very, very limiting. There are blood tests that you can do for IgG and some um, IgA and even wheat. You can measure IgM antibodies. I don't know if you can for any other uh, food allergy. Uh, food antigens. But there are blood tests that you can do for these other types of antibodies, and they're typically called food intolerance tests. There's dozens of different options. Um, there's not actually a standardized way to measure how accurate they are. So, you know, skin prick tests and RAS tests are measured based on its they're either compared to each other. So it's either compared to like the blood test is compared to whether or not it showed up on the skin prick test in, in scientific studies, or they're measured to uh, an unobservable immediate reaction when the person consumes, you know, peanuts. So there'd be an entire study that's just done on peanut allergies because they can, you know, take this person, give them a peanut, see them go into anaphylaxis, and then they can do a skin prick test or a blood test and see if if they test positive or negative for peanut allergy. With uh, food intolerance, there's nothing to compare it to. So there's not a, a you know, you can sort of look at internal um, consistency with some of these tests. And certainly some of the tests have sort of been notoriously less reliable than others. Um, but there's not a another way of measuring food intolerance like, if I give this person a peanut, they go into anaphylaxis. There isn't a version of that for food intolerance because the reactions tend to be a little bit more multifaceted in terms of their symptoms. They tend to be delayed. They can be a little bit more vague and, and hard to pinpoint. There are some really interesting studies that have looked at people with symptoms that um, things like uh, asthma symptoms or chronic fatigue, uh, chronic headaches, GI symptoms, um, uh, symptoms that are like allergy symptoms like nasal congestion or um, a variety of different skin conditions. And they, what they've done, there's been a variety of these studies where they've done IgG food panels. They've eliminated all of the foods on that panel. And sometimes what they do is they'll divide the people into two groups. One group, they're all told they're cutting out all the foods they tested positive for. One group really is cutting out all the foods they're testing positive for. And one group is randomly cutting out foods that they tested negative for and not the foods they tested positive for. And in those, uh, those uh, clinical trials, the results are typically ex pretty impressive in terms of symptom resolution. So typically, somewhere around two-thirds to three-quarters of the people will have dramatic improvement in their symptoms when they eliminate the foods that they actually tested positive for on these IgG panels. But that's a different, you know, that's basically saying food intolerance is a real thing and can really drive inflammation and really drive symptoms. And that's sort of a different statement than stating how accurate those tests are. Um, there really isn't a good way to quantify, you know, a false negative rate or a false positive rate when there's nothing 
uh, standardized to compare it to. So, um, so those testings, you know, they have, again, they have similar limitations in the sense that you have to have been exposed to the food in order for it to show up positive in the first place. Um, there are almost certainly going to be conditions in which there's going to be false positives, probably the same things that are driving, you know, chronic infections, uh, certain, you know, types of things like lymphoma, uh, things like uh, inflammatory diseases like asthma that are probably going to drive up uh, false positive rates. Uh, certainly things like leaky gut is going to mean that the body's you know, producing a lot of antibodies against food antigens. And those are, you know, my uh, functional medicine specialist will actually, you know, say like, you know, he can tell somebody has a, a leaky gut based on how many positives come back from a food intolerance panel. Like it's a sort of normal thing to have maybe 10 to 20 foods come back on one of those panels that tests, you know, a few hundred foods. But if like 50 come back or 100 come back, like, oh, yep, that's that's got to be leaky gut. So, um, so with food intolerance, um, it can be a little bit more frustrating in terms of diagnosis. Again, you know, what the, the gold standard becomes food journaling, elimination and challenge. So, um, you know, the, the way around the deficiencies in a skin prick test or the way around the deficiency in these blood tests is to either, Use that information to to guide an elimination and challenge diet or to confirm that information with an elimination and, and challenge diet. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of allergists will still have a, you know, they, they might grade a reaction on a skin prick test and anything that's not, you know, a complete flat zero, nothing, nothing happened, they're going to get you to do an elimination challenge and verify. Or if something that you went in suspecting shows up negative, they'll still get you to do an elimination and challenge to, to verify that there is no reaction. Um, and in part, you know, one of the things I was doing as I was researching for this podcast, there's a few interesting articles in um, medical journals right now about the ethics surrounding um false negative rates in these tests because if there's a you know 5 to 20% false negative rate that means that um and let's say 20% of the population in an allergist's office has a true allergy which is a fairly good estimate based on these studies that means that you know say one in every few hundred people you are um telling them they don't have an allergy when they do and they could potentially go home and expose themselves to that food again and have another life-threatening reaction. So, so ethically, like if you know that there's a, a, a chance that that person is going to have a reaction to a food, even though your testing said that they won't, what's your responsibility as a, as a, as a provider? And what these, these research articles are really trying to emphasize is the importance of, um, backing up any suspicions you know if someone comes in saying i think i have a peanut allergy you test them and it shows up negative backing that up with let's still do an elimination and challenge let's do the challenge in the office where we have all the equipment just in case something goes wrong and let's let's test this in this other um you know it's a slow an elimination and challenge diet's no fun lots of people don't want to do it a lot of people just want to see what the results are on the test and go eat what they're allowed to eat. But um, at the end of the day, they, 
there just isn't a more reliable test than if you cut that food out, your symptoms go away. And if you eat that food again, do they come back? So I think this is, this is where I'd like to emphasize my experience with the modern medical community. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, you know, we've had, um, we actually had a podcast with Chris Kresser, um, talking about modern medicine that uh, if you're interested in this topic, I would actually recommend that mm-hmm. you check out and Matt can put a link in the show notes. It was a, a part, a two part uh, podcast, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and, and an interesting topic, but you know, I don't have much experience with modern medicine. Um, it was, I think about two years ago when I injured my back and that was the first time that I'd actually tried to start seeing a doctor about an actual medical condition um, other than like a specialist for my thyroid that I researched and went to a doctor who I knew was educated and experienced and all this kind of stuff, right? Like I tried to go to a regular doctor and I tried to get a medical issue taken care of and it was a nightmare. It really was a nightmare. Mm. And um, I would put this in the same exact category. I mean, it's really concerning to me that I went to a medical professional who was supposed to specialize in this. And when I walked in, um, he didn't fully listen. He didn't ask questions. It wasn't until we were debriefing after the skin prick test that he said, oh, it happened today. Like he <laughs> he was not um, thorough in um, thinking through what it was that could or could not be happening to my body. And I think... I would encourage, and I, I mean, obviously I, I know enough to have been paying attention to that and I wasn't going to learn what my problem was. I was going to get a prescription for an EpiPen so that I don't die if it ever happens again, right? Um, because I can only imagine that um, what happened with my mom is it, it got progressively worse. She's had three incidences and each one was progressively more dramatic than the last. And I've done a lot of reading and that's not unusual, right? So it's like they're they're very clear, like, do not expose yourself because it just gets worse. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's beyond concerning to me that I go in and I say, I have this genetic history, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, I have never experienced someone who has both a sensitivity and an allergy. So I'm sure you don't have an allergy. Let's go test. Um, and to me, that is a big warning sign for for any medical professional to basically diagnose you before they have, like any scientist does not come up with the hypothesis and then test for it and assure themselves, right? Like you, you gather all of the information and then you create a hypothesis and then you test and your hypothesis might be wrong. Um, and so I just want to make sure to encourage everyone that I, I feel like our listeners are smarter than this, but, you know, just because you go in and you get an, a test, whether it's an allergy, a sensitivity, or an intolerance, and you're told one thing does not mean that that is the end-all, be-all, and that it's so important, like you said, Sarah, to really do your elimination and figure out what the source of the problem is and take that to heart because we don't know what we don't know. I think this is the interesting thing about science and and development. I mean, if you had researched what you 
went about researching for this show 10 years ago, the information that you found would have been scarce. Like the, yeah. this, this is something that we are learning more and more about every day. And so we might not know, well, this is what's happening to Stacy, but I can tell you, <laughs> I should not be eating wheat. And I say should with the intention because that receptionist cracked me up. Like, and I just was like, oh my gosh, if I was any other person, right? And I came in and I was like, oh, you know, I had this, you know, I had this reaction today. I don't know what happened. And they're like, well, let's test for all the foods that were in the ingredient list of the, you know, the thing that you consumed and it comes up negative And then they tell you, you're fine. You don't have an allergy. Like that person is going to expose themselves again and have the exact same reaction instead of thinking through what was the cause, right? It's the same thing, the same message that we say over and over again when you're well, looking at how to help your health. And they leave you thinking like, I, did I make that up? Yeah. Like, Oh, I'm not even going to get into the, I think you were just having an anxiety panic attack, like ugh. drama. I mean, it was just, I mean, my personal opinion of that medical encounter was pretty much like um, a lesson for me and what other people are experiencing. <laughs> Like that's why it just was. And fortunately for me, I know better, and I, you know, it's not. Um, that's not what I went in there for. Was you know, I wasn't going in for information. I was going in for a prescription. So it was just like, uh huh, whatever. Okay, can I still have that pen? Great. Um, but <laughs> they're like, you don't have an allergy, but here's still your prescription for an EpiPen. Right. You don't have an allergy. I don't think that this is going to help. You know, but if you really want one, sure. <laughs> I mean, like what? That doesn't even make sense. But anyway, um, to me, uh, ultimately, would it be great to know what it is? Yes. But you and I have been through, I mean, my list of what is happening with my immune system and, you know, my health is is a hodgepodge of a pretty long list. Um, and so it does not surprise me at all that this happened. It's unfortunate. And I wish, obviously, that... Um, it wasn't because it's it, it was quite alarming and concerning and an adjustment for me mentally for quite a while um, to wrap my brain around, you know, what this meant for me for the rest of my life, um, for what this means risk wise when I eat out at restaurants. Like it's it's a whole new world for me. Wow. Um, but uh, what what, you know, really to to drive home is that. It doesn't matter ultimately what someone defines it as or how it's defined on a piece of paper. I ended up figuring out for me what the problem was and the solution is don't consume it, right? Like, but it's not that easy for everybody else who you don't know what's causing the problem. And, you know, definitely seek the help of medical professionals who want to figure it out with you, who will dig into the information of, well, it could be a false negative. It could be a false positive. Have you exposed yourself? Have you not? And also, did you take any Benadryl today that would be blocking histamine? Or did it happen within the last few hours and your body's still having a histamine reaction? Like there are so many different factors that, you know, went into my situation that nobody asked questions on that if, it happened to me, it can definitely happen to somebody else. And I just think it's important for people to understand and be educated because you never know when it's going to happen. And the other thing that I want to say, um, 
is my heart really, really goes out for parents of children with anaphylactic allergies. And, you know, we talked a lot on this show about sensitivity and intolerance. And I'm not trying to, you know, say one is worse than the other. But when I was going through that reaction and had difficulty breathing and was coughing and was just scared, I was so scared. And I am a grown woman who knows what the cause was because it happened to my mom. I cannot imagine what that would be like for a small child who does not have that knowledge and experience. And so I just want to say, you know, I have heard over the years how many people we connect with through this medium because of children who have allergies or intolerances. And while my children have intolerances, I have never experienced true allergy like this before. And I just... I mean, like I'm getting teary eyed saying it because I cannot imagine, like I just cannot fathom how difficult and scary that is for the child and for the family to know that there are children who could accidentally make choices or be exposed. And I mean, for me to be a grown woman and to have all the information that I do and to still have this happen, like I just, I just want to tell you, I, I feel for you and, um, you're not alone and, um, I'm just, I just fist pumped my hand in the air because I don't know the words to say other than I'm just, I feel for you and, um, and, and good on you for keeping on and having patience. Um, uh, you know, absolutely. Like, again, I have, I have kids with, uh, intolerances and sensitivities, but not allergies. And it is a definitely a very different situation. And I do find though, you know, I, I, you know, when I'm in the school, I'm, I'm always the parent who's like, here's the allergy free treat that every kid can have. Like that's, you know, I, I, it's easy for me to think that way because autoimmune protocol is pretty much that. Um, and it's, it creates a sense of community with those parents. Um, and I think we also do through this podcast because it's an entry point to paleo for a lot of parents. Um, and it's, it's, it's a different, you know, it's a very, very different bald game, bald, bald, bald game. Apparently pronunciation's not my favorite. I'm going to just say that again and let Matt edit this. It's a completely different ball game. So I do want to, before we wrap up, just at least briefly define what a food sensitivity is compared to an allergy or an intolerance. Um, a sensitivity is basically any non-antibody mediated reaction to a food. So that can involve immune activation that bypasses antibody production, but it doesn't always involve uh, immune activation. So it can be separate from that. So, you know, the classics that we've talked about on this um, podcast many times before, like uh, FODMAP sensitivity, histamine sensitivity, uh, salicylate sensitivity, those don't involve antibody production. So they're all sensitivities, not intolerances or allergies. Um, something like um, the exaggerated zonion release in response to gluten that happens in uh, celiacs, but also happens in other people with uh, the same genetic predisposition. That is a 
food that's it's a way that we can be sensitive to gluten and react to gluten that is not an intolerance or an allergy that's not driven by antibody production and you know one of the the really frustrating things for sensitivities is they generally just there's not a testing method generally they're entirely diagnosed based on symptoms in food journals and and drawing a you know do you get these types of symptoms this long after eating these types of foods? Um, so that's one of the things that's very frustrating for, for sensitivities. They're a little bit more challenging to, to diagnose. There's not as much options in terms of, of diagnostics. Um, but that's, that's the, the difference between a sensitivity and an allergy or an intolerance. The sensitivity is not mediated by antibody production. It's a different type of reaction to the food. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to go into the science and addressing all of this when you were having your own allergic (laughs) reaction. I know you're not feeling your best. And so thank you for staying up and making this happen. Um, And I want to just thank everyone who reached out and gave me positive thoughts um, when I shared on social media about what was happening. Um, I try to always be full disclosure and as honest as possible. And um, I wanted to, you know, talk more about my experience in a, in a way that wasn't just a 15 minute Insta story. Um, so th- thank you again for those of you who commented positively um, and were, were there for me. So thank you. Um, it was, it was quite a tough week, honestly. And, um, you know, it's interesting, Sarah, I forgot how um, drastic of an immune reaction uh, can happen and then how long it lasts. I mean, I remember the two days following my joints hurt so bad. I didn't want to get out of bed. Like I said to Matt, um, it hurts everywhere. Like it just, and you know, what's interesting to me is I said, there are people who are living with this pain because they don't know that there's something that they're consuming that they are, in my case, in that instance, intolerant to. Um, And what a difference like it could make to so many people to learn that. And I really hope that the medical profession catches up because we are sick and don't need to be. And so it is, it, it was such a good reminder for me because I'm already feeling better. I mean, it, it was, it was so bad. Like I could not sit all day at the office because my back pain was coming back from the extreme joint pain. And I haven't had that in a long time. Um, and so, you know, I'm already feeling better. It, you know, I, I focused on nutrient density, broth, um, lots of vegetables, and I slept so much. Like I took, you know, a day off of work. And that day that I took off of work, I took two naps and I went to bed super early. And then I went to bed early, you know, several nights following. And I just have made a conscious effort to be making sure to get uh, much more sleep than I talked about in the last podcast. (laughs) Um, That's been my week too. It's, um, I forget how just, just draining yeah. having this type of immune activation is it just saps all of your energy i've been sleeping 11 hours a night for the last week wow i mean i was doing that in the beginning um but it's more like nine to ten for me now which usually i'm at you know seven to eight so 
I mean, obviously the more that anybody can do or whatever works for you and, and feels right. I just, you know, if you know someone with this kind of chronic pain, maybe you could suggest to them this podcast, or maybe you could gift them, you know, your favorite book or share your favorite blog post article or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and just tell them like, listen, I know that this sucks. Like, giving up your favorite food or whatever for 30 days, but like, I'll do it with you because I just want to see if this makes a change for you. And we try to not encourage being pushy because people are ready when they're ready. But after having this experience, it's just such a reminder for me of, you know, what is happening to people out there um, that we could make a collective difference helping them. So true. Absolutely true. I'm all emo tonight because it's a full moon and, <laughs> you know, I got to, I, I, honestly, the moon makes me a little, a little emotional. So I'm, I'm just, my heart is with all of you listeners. I'm just, I'm with you. We're connected. Uh, but thank you so much for tuning in this week on the Paleo View. And thank you, Sarah, for for sticking it out. And um, I just want to remind everybody that you can find our show notes and um, support us by going to our blogs, thepaleomom.com and realeverything.com. Um, we have links in our show notes and on the sidebars and all that kind of stuff for more information or anything you could be looking for. And um, if you have questions you'd like to submit, you can do so through the contact form on our website. And we love it when you engage with us on social media or if you recommend our podcast to others or if you um, leave reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. So thank you again, everybody, and have a wonderful week. I myself am headed to Washington, D.C. to March 4th for Better Personal Care Laws. So um, you can follow along right now on social media. Um, I will be in D.C. Um, working on advocating for safer skin care and personal care and all that kind of stuff. Aww. So I'm excited. I mean, I love my a good protest, so. <laughs> it's not just a protest. Like, we have scheduled meetings with our legislatures to talk about cool. um, how dangerous current regulation and laws are and to, you know, advocate for empowering FDA to remove lead from lipstick the same way that they do from paint on your walls. Like, you'd think that that would be an easy argument to make, but evidently not. <sighs> <laughs> on that note, there's so many things that I now want to say that we will not say For another on day. Maybe next oriented week. podcast. Yes, I can recap um, next week how, how that goes. That would be yes, excellent. Um, well, thanks. I'll reiterate what Stacy said. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.